when I was ordained to ministry, they asked what verses I wanted read. And I chose, I think, four different ones. But one of them was this Isaiah 58. I adore this scripture. It is poetic. It's beautiful. It's lovely. It's hopeful. It's healing. And uh, one of my friends, she took all the scriptures from my ordination and she had them framed and they're in my office. And as you can see, this had to take an 8 by 10 because it's a pretty long scripture. But that's just to let you know how meaningful this passage is for me. And it just so happened to be in our lectionary text this day. It's also going to be talking a bit about fasting, which I don't think is any coincidence that Mandy will be talking about fasting Wednesday night. So I hope that you can go to EDO this Wednesday night and hopefully discuss this even further. So a discussion. I know that was a lot, but what stood out to you? Now, we've read this from the Common English Bible, which I, I love that translation. But I, and let me just preface before I even really get started today. I'm going to be quoting this verse a lot in my sermon. You're going to hear it over and over and over again. So just bear with me, okay? But the first thing that I want to do is I want to read a segment of this passage from the message. I was reading this yesterday to my husband and it, just saying these words out loud just got me, uh, it, it made me sob. It made me feel a certain kind of way. I told my, my husband, who also happens to teach uh, political science and has been known to be a politician in his days, I said, why aren't politicians using this passage as part of their stump speech? I don't understand it. But listen to this from the message. The people ask God, why do we fast and you don't look our way? Why do we humble ourselves and you don't even notice? And God replies, well, here's why. The bottom line on your fast days is you profit. You drive your employees much too hard. You fast, but at the same time you bicker and fight. You fast, but you swing a mean fist. The kind of fasting you do won't get your prayers off the ground. Do you think this is the kind of fast day I'm after? A day to show off humility? To put on a pious long face and parade around solemnly in black? Do you call that fasting a fast day that I, God, would like? This is the kind of fast day I'm after. To break the chains of injustice, to get rid of exploitation in the workplace, to free the oppressed. Interestingly enough, in the Hebrew, this word oppressed means smashed or shattered. I want you to get that visual in your head. Free the smashed and shattered. Cancel debts. What I'm seeing in you is this. What I'm interested in seeing you do is this. Sharing your food with the hungry. Inviting the homeless poor into your homes. Putting clothes on the shivering, ill-clad. Being available to your own families. And I want you to keep that little phrase right there in the back of your mind because we're going to come back to it at the end about being available to our families. God goes on to say, Do this and the lights will turn on. And your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. Then, when you pray, God will answer. You'll call out for help and I'll say, here I am. If you get rid of unfair practices, quit blaming victims. Quit gossiping about other people's sins. 
If you are generous with the hungry and start giving yourselves to the down and out, your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. I will always show you where to go. I will give you a full life in the emptiest of places, firm muscles, strong bones. You'll be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. You will use the old rubble of past lives to build anew. Rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything, Renee. Restore old ruins. Rebuild and renovate. Make the community livable again. How about that? Mender of broken walls and restorer of livable streets. There's a little bit of context to, to start out this uh, reading from. Uh, there are multiple authors of the book of Isaiah, and it's written over a period of many years. So Isaiah is broken down into three segments. First Isaiah, second Isaiah, third Isaiah. Very clever, right? So the first Isaiah is believed to actually be written by the prophet Isaiah, and those are chapters 1 through 39. The second Isaiah, chapters 40 through 55, are written by an anonymous author. And the third Isaiah, and that's where we are today, in the, that, uh, that is considered an anthology. So it's multiple authors. We are in the third Isaiah, and we are also in the post-exilic period. We are back from Babylon. We've been sent back home to rebuild the ruins, to get it all together and to make it work again. They've been sent back to their homeland to rebuild. Now, in Isaiah 42, God is very plain what he wants the leaders of Israel to look like. He wants them to be a certain kind of leader. And this is what he says in Isaiah 42. Take a good look at my servant. I'm backing him to the hilt. He's the one I chose, and I couldn't be more pleased with him. I've bathed with him with my spirit, my life. He'll set everything right among the nations. He won't call attention to what he does with loud speeches or gaudy parades. Gaudy parades, sorry about that. That was my southernness. He won't brush aside the bruised and the hurt, and he won't disregard the small and insignificant, but he'll steadily and firmly set things right. He won't tire out and quit. He won't be stopped until he's finished his work to set things right on earth. But in Isaiah 58, we find these are not the leaders they come to be. This is not who they are. The, the priests were not leading the people in this way. They are hyper-correct in their religious observances and delighted to exhibit their piety. But they are missing the point. The scripture in Isaiah says, if you remove the yoke from among you, the finger pointing, the wicked speech, if you open your heart to the hungry, they placed yokes on the people that were heavy and impossible to carry. There was this legalism of outward piety and judgment when they couldn't carry the weight. I thought about this a lot because I think our modern day priests, pastors, preachers, teachers, whoever, we do this too. We place yokes on people that are impossible to carry. Like Mandy was teaching last week about giving. You have to give 10%. And if you don't, God will get you. Oh, and the tenth is just the beginning. That's not even, that's not even good to God. Over the 10%, that's what makes God happy. Man, that, 
that's an impossible weight to carry some weeks, right? I thought of, um, I have, most, most of you know that I have childhood abuse in my past, and so several, several years ago, my ex-husband and I were serving in a church in Tupelo, Mississippi, and there was a pastor there that preached a sermon on forgiveness. And he said from the pulpit that God gives us this grace called spiritual amnesia that causes us to forget the wounds that have been done to us. Oh, really? I mean, is that not bad or what? I'm sitting on the front pew and I'm just immediately like, he is full of, you know what? That is not true. So me being who I am, I said after church, I need to talk to you for a minute. That's where I went wrong. I said, please show me in the Bible where we are given spiritual amnesia. Show me. He says... Well, it's not there, but it's grace. Please show me in the Bible where it says grace is spiritual amnesia. Please tell me how I'm supposed to forget some of this stuff. How am I supposed to forget? How are you supposed to forget the worst of the worst? Or even the mediums of the mediums were crying out loud. It doesn't work that way. That, and I, at that point in my life, I had heard that message from a pulpit multiple times. And I thought, that is an impossible yoke for you to carry. We can't live up to that. I even said to this guy, God doesn't forget. Why would he ask us to do something he doesn't do? He didn't have an answer for that. I even said, this is probably where it really went off the rails. I said, you're telling me that a person that was a sex worker back in the 70s in the streets of New Orleans, and they've been saved. I come from an evangelical background, so I'm going to use evangelical language, so get ready. You're telling me that woman gets saved, and she leaves that life behind, and she's new in Christ, and she's living the thing, and she's following Jesus, and she's doing all the things. And one night, she's kneeling beside her bed, and she remembers that life she used to lead, and she says, God, you know I'm sorry. Are you really telling me that God is sitting in heaven and when he hears her say that, he looks at Peter and says, what's she talking about? I have no clue. He said, yes, that's who God is. That's a yoke that's too hard to carry, my friends. The leaders of the Jewish people believed that they should be commended for their right living, for their outward piousness, for their fasting, but the writer in this text says they have not earned any favor from God for this busyness, for this kind of fasting. Now God does indeed choose a fast. That is an act of obedience, of genuine self-denial. A fast that opens up our eyes to see the need and the pain around us. Not a fast that makes us look more spiritual, but actually makes us more spiritual. A fast that focuses our attention on others and not ourselves. Is this the kind of fast I choose? A day of self-affliction, of bending one's head like a reed and lying down in mourning, clothing and ashes. Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Isn't this the fast I choose? 
releasing wicked restraints, untying the ropes of a yoke, setting free the mistreated, and breaking every yoke. Isn't it sharing your bread with the hungry and bringing the homeless poor into your house, covering the naked when you see them and not hiding from your own family? To know the presence of God is found in the embrace of the neighbor, the hungry, the poor, the naked. This spirituality is material. It's bread, home, body, flesh. It's the engagement with the painful dailiness of wretchedness and need. It should make us cry. It should make us lament, maybe even rage. But it should make us do something. This commentary that I read said, this requires a clear-headed awareness of systemic issues. The character of piety has been completely revamped toward the urgency of neighbor engagement. Risky contact with the needy is a response to systemic wickedness. This kind of fasting and piety performed in these earlier passages was calculating in its aim of quid, pro, quo. I act right. I do right. I, then God will reward me. God is obligated to bless me if I refuse to see a rated R movie. God will bless me if I stand up for God by refusing to dress immodestly. And then God will give me a wonderful godly man and our intimacy will be magnificent and frequent and magical. God will reward me if I make the choice to not allow my children to read Harry Potter. Of course God will reward me with children that will not depart from the faith if I keep them from Harry Potter. This kind of fasting, if I do right, act right, then God will bless me. And God says, miss me with that. God says you fast to get your desires straight, to get your mind clear. You fast to deny yourself so, you, so that you can clearly see others. You fast, just like all good parents have to say from time to time, because God says so. Why fast? In these passages, is so we can clearly see others. Why? Because you and I need joy and well-being. This kind of fast, this kind of God fast, it changes us. It's supposed to. The passage does not comment on what such acts do for the recipients. The main beneficiaries identified are the ones who take the initiative. God ain't too worried about helping the people that don't have enough money. Well, they might go buy drugs with that money. He doesn't seem too worried about that. He's not too worried about the people that are in need. What will they do, when we what will they do with our help? God doesn't seem too concerned with that, but he's really concerned with those of us that stand in a place where we can help. We are changed when we open our eyes and see others. When we see hurt and need and abandonment and hopelessness. And when we do something about it, we are changed. Then your light will break out like the dawn and you will be healed quickly. Your own righteousness will walk before you and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and God will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the finger pointing, quit telling people how to live out their faith in the way that, that you think they should. Quit finger pointing. 
Do away with the wicked speech. If you open your heart to the hungry and provide abundantly for those who are afflicted, your light will shine in the darkness, and your gloom will be like the moon. Noon, sorry. The Lord will guide you continually and provide for you, even in parched places. He will rescue your bones. How many of you have felt pain so deep you felt it in your bones? You will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water that won't run dry. They will rebuild ancient ruins on your account. The foundations of generations past you will restore. You will be called mender of broken walls and restorer of livable streets. Healing is a byproduct of life lived for the sake of others. They will rebuild ancient ruins on your account. The foundations of generations past you will restore. You share food with the hungry. Invite the homeless poor into your homes. Put clothes on the shivering ill-clad. Being available to your own families, you will be called mender of broken walls and restorer of livable streets. So let's break this down and wrap it up. What does Isaiah 58, what should that look like in my life? How do I live out Isaiah 58? We are not priests. We're not living in a post-exilic time frame. We are not Jewish. Isaiah 58 was not written for an audience of American Christians in 2023. So how does it apply to me? What does Isaiah 58 need to look like in my life? Like Vicki said earlier, Imago shares food with the hungry. Been doing that for a long time and we will keep doing so. Not out of a, hey, look at us. Absolutely not. That's gross. We invite the poor into our homes, and we will keep doing so. We give clothes to those in need, and we will keep doing so. The passage says, yet again, they will rebuild ancient ruins on your account. The foundations of generations past you will restore sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. I want to end with this. Just give us something to think about. Ponder. Some of us need to rebuild some familial ancient ruins. Some of us need to shore up some generational foundations because they've been eroded by white supremacy, racism, misogyny, hatred. That's our past. That's our past. Those are our ancient ruins. I don't, I, I dare, there's probably not a person in this room that can say, no, that's not my ancestors. Y'all know where I'm from. Some of our familial ancient ruins have been ravaged by sexual abuse, domestic violence, abandonment by parent, physical abuse, drug addictions, alcoholism. Some of, us, some of us have generational trauma in our foundation, and we have work to do, being available to our own families. Do you have influence whatsoever on a child? Through church, through nieces, nephews, through a classroom, through friends' children, through your own children? 
then you have the opportunity to rebuild ancient ruins by treating those coming up behind us differently than we were treated. We can choose, we must choose, to treat others coming up behind us with dignity, humanity, goodness, and love, especially if we weren't treated that way growing up. We have some things to do in our families. I could not give you a list of all the ways I failed the four of my children. Still do. I am who I am. I have one child that refuses to speak to me. We have pain in these areas of our families. And I could sob for days with ways I let them down and messed up. But I want to say this one thing. I did not pass down to them abuse. And if that's your word today, that you did not pass that down, I did not pass down alcoholism. I did not pass down abuse. I did not pass down neglect. I'm not going to pass those down. This might be your story and my story, but it doesn't have to be the people's behind us. It doesn't have to be their story. This is rebuilding ancient ruins. That's what that's all about. That and a good counselor. Can I get an amen? Amen. Guys, we don't get this by default. We have to be intentional. We have to choose. We share with the poor. We clothe the, 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 the people that don't have clothes. We do all those things. But we also have ancient ruins to build, to rebuild, to say, by the grace of God, this ain't going to happen with me anymore. We're going to break it.